This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So we're going to go through a series of questions about the Eucharist and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And let's begin with a place that's maybe the most natural, and that is with the change that takes place in the bread and the wine on the altar at the Mass. Okay, there's a change that takes place during the Eucharistic liturgy. And that change is called by St. Thomas Aquinas transubstantiation. And the church has taken over that word and that language and has used it ever since. And he describes transubstantiation as a kind of change that's totally unique. It's unlike anything else that takes place in nature. It's not the same as creation, but it's also not the same as the any of the species of change that Aristotle identifies as happening in things around us. It's not a locomotion. It's not a substantial change or corruption, certainly not of the natural kind, for reasons we'll see why. It's not just a change of qualities. It's not just a change of quantities. And it's not a change of place, okay? It's a totally unique kind of change called transubstantiation. Why is it unique? Here's how we can understand it. The substance of the bread and the wine become the body and blood of Christ, while the accidents of bread and wine remain. So we need to be clear on what the terms substance and accidents means. What do those terms mean? In the philosophy of Aristotle, the substance is what a thing is. It's, it's, you could say it's essence, or you might say it's natural kind. So the substance of the, your dog Fido is going to be dog, uh, or maybe a more specific kind of dog, like German Shepherd. That's what, the, that's what the animal is. And then there are the accidents, which are the features or the traits or characteristics of the dog. And that's going to be the dog's color, height, the volume of his bark, whether he's barking or not, actions, things like that. Those are accidents. So if you wanted to, you could think of it in terms of the kind and the attributes, and you wouldn't be far off the mark. It would be more or less what St. Thomas has in mind. But the claim is that what happens in transubstantiation is that the substance of the bread and wine, that is what they are as bread and as wine changes and they become a new and different kind of thing. The body and blood of Christ, that's what they actually are or what they actually become. But while the accidents of bread and wine remain, so it continues to look like bread, taste like bread, it continues to have the same diameter the host does and uh, the wine that's in the chalice looks like wine tastes like wine smells like wine has the same color as wine but it's not wine and likewise the host is not bread so the substance changes but the accidents remain the same now let's try to get into a little bit more detail what i've said so far is maybe just at the level of I hope it's at the level of catechetical instruction. I mean, I hope most Catholics know this, but unfortunately, many of them don't hear this. And uh, so we need to just get the basics first. 
But here's the first thing we need to say. Transubstantiation is not a locomotion of Jesus Christ from heaven to earth. And it's not bilocation or multilocation. So let's get clear on this because we're saying something very profound. We're saying this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, where is the body and blood of Jesus Christ according to the Catholic faith and the faith of Thomas Aquinas? Body and blood and soul and divinity of Jesus Christ are in him and he is living in a state we can call it in the state of the ascension. So once upon a time he was on earth, he suffered on the cross, died, rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven, and there he remains in a state, in the state of ascension. We could also speak of the glorified Christ. And what we're saying is that the Eucharist, in the Eucharistic celebration, the bread and the wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, that is, they become the body and blood of the glorified, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. But that does not entail that he leaves the state of the ascension and then comes on our altar, or that he changes place and goes from there to here. And it doesn't mean that he's on this in this church, in this tabernacle, and then in this church, in this tabernacle, uh, like he's in two different places at the same time. No, it's not that. There's no locomotion. There's no change of place in the risen Lord Jesus Christ in transubstantiation. That's part of the mystery. He remains who he is and what he is in his glorified ascended state. And the change is on the altar in the bread and the wine, but not a local, local change in him. Transubstantiation, Thomas Aquinas tells us, is not the annihilation of bread and wine by the body and blood of Christ. And it's, uh, it, the, it is no longer bread and it's no longer wine. Okay, So I want to be clear on that. We want to focus on that for a minute because there are Christians, Lutherans in particular, who believe in something called consubstantiation. And they say basically it's both bread and the body of Christ, it's both wine and the blood of Christ. Aquinas considers that possibility uh, several hundred years before Luther, actually, and he dismisses that and says that's incompatible with the faith of the church. It's incompatible with the scriptural statement, this is my body, and this is my blood, and it's incompatible with the idea that there's a change there, because if if, it, if there's a change in the bread, in order for there to be a real change, there needs to be a real cessation of the bread and the wine and other such and other kinds of reasons that he gives. Consubstantiation is contrary to the words of institution. This is my body, this is my blood, given in the words of scripture as the church understands it. Okay, so we've said a few things about what transubstantiation is not. It's not locomotion. It's not annihilation. It's not consubstantiation. So what is it? What is it? Here's what the Council of Trent says. Quote, by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place the change or conversion, is the word that's used, of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. And the Holy Catholic Church has suitably and properly called this change 
transubstantiation. The Catechism of the Council of Trent gives us a, a helpful clarification. It goes on, quote, the whole substance of the bread changes into the body of Christ and the whole substance of wine into the blood of Christ without any change in our Lord. That's the key thing, without any change in our Lord. For Christ is neither generated nor changed, nor increased, but remains entire in his substance. That's the mystery right there, transubstantiation. So the bread and the wine change, but the body and blood of Christ do not. The bread and the wine change into the body and blood of Christ. And a common way of describing this is that the bread and wine undergo a change that terminates at the substance of the body and blood of Christ respectively. Okay, so we wanna draw a distinction here. The, the bread and the wine go through a change, but the change terminates at the substance of the body and blood of Christ. But here's the key thing, the change does not terminate at the quantitative dimensions of the body and blood of Christ. Now I just drew a very subtle distinction that in a way has everything in it. So if we, let's think for a minute about changes. Every change has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end point is sometimes called the terminus of the change. When something changes, like let's say a body changes place, it goes from being here to being there. The new location is the terminus of the change. Or if something grows bigger, like let's say a puppy grows and gets, grows into a larger dog, an adult dog, the adult size and shape of the dog is the terminus of the change. So that would mean the dog grows and the change terminates at a certain set of dimensions, a quantitative, a quantifiable, measurable uh, set of dimensions that it has. So St. Thomas says that in transubstantiation, there's a change, the bread and the wine change. Where does the change terminate? The terminus of the change is the substance of the body and blood of Christ, but not, he's very clear about this, the quantitative dimensions of the body and blood of Christ. What does that mean? It means that when the bread and the wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ, the body and blood of Christ are present there, but not with the same dimensions quantitative dimensions that they that the glorified risen lord jesus christ has all the other accidents of jesus christ are there in the eucharist they're present okay but the quantitative dimensions of the glorified body of christ are not there in the eucharist in the same condition that they are in in the risen lord jesus christ so in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he's a, he's a determinate height, let's say. How tall is he? I don't know, 5'11", 6 feet tall, something like that, maybe. I don't know. Nobody knows. And he's got a certain color, and he's probably radiating light, like on the transfiguration, on the Mount of the Transfiguration, or as he did in the, in the resurrection. And he has special properties of a glorified body. And he has certain dimensions, quantitative dimensions. Those dimensions remain what they are in Christ, but the Eucharist does not take on those quantitative dimensions. 
the change that takes place in the bread and wine does not change into those very quantities. Rather, the accidents, the body and blood change, the bread and the wine change into what the body and blood of Christ essentially are, but they don't change into the length, width, or height of the body of Christ. Rather, the substance of the body and blood of Christ present in the Eucharist displays the accidents of bread and wine. Okay. Now, among the accidents of bread and wine, okay, are the dimensive quantities of bread and wine. So the size of the host remains the same, and the, um, the volume in the, chalice, in the chalice remains the same. Those are part of the, the accidents of bread and wine, and that remains. Okay, so you have a change of substance without change of accidents. That means there's no change in the quantity of Christ and no change in the quantity of the, the host or the, what, the wine in the chalice. There's only a change in the substance. Okay, so that's the mystery of the change of transubstantiation. And St. Thomas is clear and the church's teaching is clear that that change takes place when the celebrant pronounces the words, this is my body, this is my blood. And when he pronounces that in the Eucharist, when the priest says that, the conversion occurs. Okay, so then St. Thomas goes on further and starts to talk about the mode of the presence. So now it's like we, the transubstantiation has taken place, the change has occurred, and now we have the real presence in the Eucharist. So what is the mode of the presence? That's St. Thomas's way of describing it, of describing the question. And here's the basic point. The body of Christ is present in the Eucharist, but without the magnitude or dimensive quantity, that is the length, width, or height, properly speaking of his glorified body. The blood of Christ is present in the Eucharist, but without the magnitude or dimensive quantity, properly speaking, of his glorified body, okay? This is rather mysterious because we're saying that we have the very substance, the very reality of the, the body and blood of Christ without the proper quantitative dimensions, or the, or the quantitative dimensions that are proper to his body and blood in his glorified state. And that causes people to really scratch their head and say, how can you have the substance of a material thing without the quantity of that material thing? And the answer is that for Aquinas on his metaphysics, the substance of a material thing does not equal the quantitative dimensions of the thing. But for a lot of modern philosophers and just modern people, we, because of our scientific worldview and scientific education, we tend to identify the substance of material things with the very quantitative dimensions themselves. Aquinas does not do that. So for Descartes, right, whatever exists is either a thinking thing or an extended thing. And the extension is the very essence or the whatness of the thing, it's of the thing itself. Aquinas just does not go that way in his metaphysics at all. And it is possible to have the substance of a material thing without the quantitative dimensions of that material thing, properly speaking, uh, because the substance is not simply the same as the quantitative dimensions.
Now it's going to take an act of God to bring that about. And that's what happens in transubstantiation, but it's possible. We'll say more about that in a minute. But the dimensive quantities of the body and blood of Christ in his glorified state, okay, the, the, the body and blood of Christ in the Eucharist are without those dimensive quantities, properly speaking. But what do we mean by properly speaking? Okay, the magnitude and dimensive quantity of the body and blood of Christ are not present as accidents modifying and determining the body and blood of Christ, but they come with the very substance of the body and blood of Christ and belong to the substance, okay, on the, on the altar, okay, they belong to the very substance of his body and blood, okay, and so they're there, but not in the same mode that they have in the glorified body of Christ. What is this other way that they're there then? St. Thomas calls it, they're present by concomitance, concomitance. In other words, all the physical features of Jesus, okay, the whole Christ, he says, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, the soul of Christ, the divinity of Christ, and not only those things, but those things in all of their details, I mean, his, his organs, his hair, his nails, his eyes, everything that goes to being a, a human body, a living human body, including his soul, and the blood of Christ, you know, and it's liquid blood, and, you know, all the things that are in blood, red blood cells, white blood cells, it's all present in the Eucharist, without the quantitative dimensions that it has in the glorified body of Christ, but it's all there by concomitance, it's called. It's all there by concomitance. In the substance, it's like, you could say the root of those accidents or features is there because the very substance is there. What he is, his body, his blood, his soul and divinity is there, okay? Now, I suppose the million dollar question is, what do you mean by the expression present by concomitance? Well, I mean, we could take it literally. I mean, concomitance literally means walking, walking with or going with. So whatever goes with the body and blood of Christ is present in the Eucharist, okay? Is, is there in, because the substance is there, but it's present by going with it, you see, because Jesus Christ, the very substance of his body and substance of his blood has real features. I mean, Jesus has an actual height and actual organs and actual blood. And, and you, to have the substance of all that, you need the accidents too, but existing in another mode, existing under the, under the species or under the appearances of bread and wine, and existing because the substance is there, which is really the root of the accidents of his glorified body. So let me try to give an analogy. If we think of an, uh, an acorn, an acorn has all the gen genes that go into the fully developed, fully grown oak tree. So all the, the genes are there in the acorn, but they're not in the air acorn uh, in the same way that you had all um, in, that you have in the fully developed oak tree, 
the fully developed oak tree has all sorts of accidents and features and properties that the acorn doesn't have. But all that stuff that's in the fully grown oak tree is somehow present in the acorn. In, it's like embedded in the genetic code. It's something like that. It's like all of the accidents and features of the glorified body of Christ are present in the substance of the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus, but they're embedded there in, a, in the root, so to speak, or in the kind of genetic code, which is the very substance itself, okay? That might be one way to think of the real presence uh, of the accidents of the glorified body in the, the Eucharist by concomitance, okay? So, yeah, that's the, that's the key distinction. Once you have that, so what, what you have in transubstantiation then is we have the substance of the body and blood of Christ without the accidents of the body and blood of Christ, properly speaking, but with the accidents of the body and blood of Christ by concomitance. What we have, properly speaking, are the accidents of bread and wine that are containing the real presence or containing the substance of Christ, his body, his blood, soul, and divinity. And all that takes place, that change takes place at the words of the, the, uh, of the, at the, words of the consecration. So we've got everything that's in the glorified and risen Christ, the body, his bones, his sinews, all of it is present, but without their accidents, properly speaking, the accidents are all present by concomitance. Okay, now I wanna stop and focus for a second on these two things. The soul and divinity are also present. So on St. Thomas's understanding of human nature and human anthropology, what makes the body to be alive is the soul. So when we have the body of Christ, we wanna be very clear, we don't have the the dead body of Jesus Christ. We have the living body of Jesus Christ, but what makes the body to be living is soul. So we have the soul of Christ as well. But the body and the soul of Jesus Christ, his human body and human soul, don't exist on their own. They only exist by being united with the very person of Jesus Christ, which is his very divinity. So we have his divinity as well. That's what we have in the Eucharist. The whole Christ, his bo human body, human blood, soul, and divinity. And we have them. It's the very humanity of Jesus that's now living in the glorified state. It's living his resurrection life. So when you and I consume the Eucharist and receive Holy Communion, we are receiving risen flesh, resurrected flesh, with it emanating and radiating all of its, its resurrection, you know, just power that's emanating from it. And the soul of Christ, see, I want to focus in on something there. The soul of Christ contains all of the love and all of the grace that's in the soul of Christ. So if you remember St. Thomas's teaching that the human soul of Jesus Christ contains all the grace that's sufficient to save the world and is abundant with love, that's all present in the Eucharist as well. So we're receiving all of that. 
at, in the Eucharist. It's all, it all comes with it in one mysterious reality, okay? It's all present there. Now, but furthermore, because the divinity of Christ is present, we also have, by concomitance, the Eternal Father and the Holy Spirit as well. So the, the whole Trinity, we can say, is present in the Eucharist by concomitance, that is by going with Christ, because where Jesus is, there too is the Father and the Holy Spirit. So just as Christ is in the Eucharist, so too are the Father and the Holy Spirit. But here's what we want to say to wrap this question up about the, the mode of the presence. The body and blood of Christ is present in the Eucharist, under the species, we say. And species, I want you to understand that to mean the likeness or the look of bread and wine. And that means the body and blood of Christ, okay? So that's the mode of the presence of Christ. Now we can ask another question about the accidents. What about the accidents, okay? So let's, St. Thomas has a whole study of the accidents. And what he basically says is that the accidents of bread and wine continue in the sacrament without a subject, okay? Now that's very interesting. An accident without a subject, without a substance, seems to be incoherent because on Aristotle's philosophy or his metaphysics, accidents, features, don't exist on their own. That was the error of Plato, Aristotle thought. All accidents exist in a substance or in a subject. So what St. Thomas is telling us now is that the accidents, the features of bread and wine, exist, but without existing in a subject. And that seems like a contradiction within the terms of Aristotle's own metaphysics. But the statement is, in fact, ambiguous. So let's think about what it means to have an accident without a substance. Okay. On the one hand, it can mean you have accidents without any subject or substance that they're in and modifying, and also without any divine support at all. And that would definitely be impossible. Aquinas says so. On the other hand, an accident without a substance can mean there's no substance there, but there is a special divine support. Okay. And that is possible. And that's what Aquinas thinks is happening in the Eucharist, that the accidents of the bread and wine, the features of bread and wine, are being supported by God in a special way immediately and directly. Okay? That's the, the idea. Now, we want to get clear on one thing, uh, if we want to go a little bit deeply into this. Among the accidents, there's a certain kind of order. In Aristotle's categories, first comes quantity, then comes quality. And the way that St. Thomas thinks about it is that the qualities and the other features of, the, of things, they inhere in the quantities, okay? So the way that St. Thomas describes it is that you have the quantity of the host and the quantity of what is in the chalice. And that quantity functions like a substance and supports all of the other accidents of the Eucharist, all the other species or the accidents that are found in the species. So the taste and the color and even the location are there in the accidents thanks to the quantity 
that's underlying them, but the quantity itself is being sustained by special divine power, okay? Another point we wanna make is that the accidents retain all of their causal influence. So for example, consecrated wine, the precious blood of our Lord Jesus is inebriating. So if a person drinks it to excess, the person will become intoxicated. It contains all the same causal influence it has uh, normally. And furthermore, the chemistry of the bread and wine remain exactly the same. Since the chemistry are proper accidents of bread and wine rather than the essence or the substance of it. So a lot of people think, well, if we can determine that the chemical constitution has remained the same, then we've shown or we've demonstrated that transubstantiation is not true or it doesn't take place. And that does not follow on Aquinas's understanding of this. The chemistry belongs to the order of accidents, okay? And Aquinas says that the accidents of bread and wine contain or circumscribe the body of Christ and the accidents of wine contain and circumscribe the blood of Christ. And this is the basis for saying that the body and blood of Christ are here on the altar or in the tabernacle. It has to do with those accidents, okay? Where we speak according to the accidents. And then one last thing to say is that the accidents of bread and wine are not just um, there for no reason at all. There's a number of reasons why God supports them and gives them this special kind of divine support. And the reason he does so, there's a couple of reasons. First, it's to allow us to receive the body and blood of Christ in a manner that's suitable for human beings. And Aquinas very honestly acknowledges if we had to consume the body and blood of Christ, like under the accidents of body and blood, that would be very disconcerting and even unsuitable for human beings to do so. So God has uh, contained or circumscribed the substance of the body and blood of Christ under these accidents of bread and wine so that we can receive them and consume them in a normal, ordinary way that's suitable for human beings to do so. But there's another reason why we should pay attention to the accidents. The accidents of bread and wine have sign value. So bread has a great deal of significance in the scriptures. And you have the feeding of the people of Israel with the manna. And wine is a, is a symbol of nuptial love. And so, and so the accidents of bread and wine have a great deal of significance. And they signify things to us. They signify nourishment. I mean, food stands for nourishment. It stands for life. And so the accidents of bread and wine tell us something. It's like God is teaching us something through these accidents. God is telling us, I want to be your nourishment. I want to inebriate you with my love. I want to, you to have me to such an extent that you become me. And all the things that go with eating and drinking he wants us to have with him life together uh, and everything that you know meals together represent i mean banquets together he wants us to have that with him so and i encourage all of you to really think about and ponder 
the sign value of bread and wine, what do they signify in ordinary life? What do they signify in scripture? And that's going to open up a whole dimension of Eucharistic meditation and meaning for you. It actually says a great deal when you think about what bread and wine are and what they stand for. So the last point I'll make is that all of this that we've been talking about, it's all a novel or new, interesting way of being and becoming in the world. Transubstantiation does not occur anywhere else except in the Eucharistic celebration and the Eucharistic sacrifice. And it's the only place that it takes place. We could not know about this by doing philosophy. We could not know about this by studying nature around us. It's a truly exceptional change, an exceptional kind of presence or mode of presence, and an exceptional thing that God does in the world specifically to make himself available to us in his real presence so that we can have life together, to draw us into his friendship, to join us to his act of offering himself in sacrifice to the Father, and to nourish us or give us holy communion so that we can receive the, all the effects of the, of the Lord Jesus, of his body, blood, soul, and divinity in his glorified and triumphant condition, and to receive the fruits of his sacrifice. So this is a totally unique thing. And uh, we can only know about this because God has revealed it to us and could only know about this because the church has understood this under the light of the spirit and has penetrated deeply the meaning of scriptures and the words, this is my body, this is my blood. And uh, that's the only way we can know about it. But once you hear this and, and start to unpack a little bit of what's in the meaning of those words, this is my body, this is my blood, this is not a figure of speech, it's not a metaphor, it's not just a nice psychological suggestion to make us feel good or make us like make believe that we're in the company of the Lord. No, this is not make believe. It's not metaphor. It's not just a psychological condition that feels good. This is the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, his, the very substance of his, his being in the Eucharist under appearances under accidents that are suitable for us to handle and receive, celebrate the sacrifice, receive Holy Communion, and be with the living and true God who's incarnate in Jesus Christ. So this is the doctrine of transubstantiation and the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I think I've said enough, and what I would like to do is make myself available for questions I'm gonna take a risk and do that. This is a, a tricky topic. So if people have questions, I'd be happy to take them. There's a question in the chat for you, Father, I'll read it off. Uh, this is from Bruce. When we receive Eucharist, it is as if we are receiving an acorn that grows into an oak tree. I guess this is a comment. So <laughs> <laughs> no, that was an analogy that I used to try to explain what concomitant presence is. So the glorified body of Christ 
and, and its quantitative properties are present in the Eucharist, okay? But in a mode that's unique and new, it's in a mode that's not the same as they are in the glorified body. They're in a sacramental mode. So I was trying to find an analogy for what that is like, like presence by concomitance. Like it comes with the substance, but in a mode that's unique to the sacrament, not, but is not in, the, not in the same mode as it is in the glorified body of Christ. And I was trying to find an analogy for what that's like, because on Aristotle's metaphysics, if you've got the substance, you've got the source of all the accidents, okay? So if you've got the substance of the body and blood of Christ, you've got the source of all the accidents. And if you've got the source, you've, you've got them in principle, okay? And so I use the analogy of the acorn and the oak tree to say something like just as the genetic code in the acorn is like the source of the whole tree, so likewise, uh, the substance of Christ is the source of all those attributes that he has in his glorified state. There is a problem with the analogy. And that is, I mean, we think of atoms as like, and the, and the genes as having like basically the same condition in the oak as they do in the fully grown tree and the microcellular structures. And that part of the analogy doesn't hold. So that part's different. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. What's the, here's another question. What's the difference between essence and substance? That's a good question. So there's two senses of the term substance. One sense of the term substance is a particular this, like this particular dog here, Fido, can be called a substance. Now this cat here, Felix, can be called a substance. So sometimes the term substance is used to signify particular existing things. That's called a uh, primary substance. But then secondary substance is a name or a term that signifies the kind of thing that it is. So dog is a secondary substance. Cat is a secondary substance. Oak tree is a secondary substance. Something like the universal intelligible essence. And in that sense, secondary substance and essence are, for our purposes, synonymous. Okay? They basically mean the same thing. Now, in metaphysics, we can draw, maybe draw distinctions between the two, but we don't need to go into that for right now. For our purposes, they're the same. So transubstantiation, I mean, in a way, you could call it transessentialization, and it would be more or less the same Thing. It's just a, maybe an awkward way of speaking. I hope that answers the question. There's another question. If Jesus is everywhere, how does the Eucharist make a difference? Now, this is a very common question, and I want, I'm glad it was raised, um, because there's a sense, yes, there's a sense in which Christ is everywhere, and this because God is everywhere. That's the, um, that's, that's true, but that kind of divine ubiquity is we have to understand it comes in different modes. So God is everywhere, but he's present in different modes, in different ways, we can say, in different things. So God is present in nature in one way. He's present in the human soul by grace in another mode or in another way. 
and he's present in the Eucharist in another mode still. So what is the manner in which Christ is present in the Eucharist? He's present in this mode such that his very substance, his, the reality of what he is, his body, his blood, his soul, and divinity is present in the Eucharist. Whereas that substantial presence of his body, blood, soul, and divinity is not, say, in nature. It's not. It's just not, he's just not present in nature in that mode. So the presence of his body, blood, soul, and divinity substantially is proper to the Eucharist and is only found in the Eucharist. Okay. I hope that answers the question. The key thing is learning to distinguish modes of presence for a being who's for, yeah, within, within God. Okay. God is present in different modes. And Aquinas has a lot to say about the many different modes of Christ's presence. That could be another talk. If you want to ever do that, we can just go through the many modes of presence, of divine presence that uh, St. Thomas talks about. Do you want me to just keep going, going down the chat list? I'm happy to do that. Yeah? Okay. So here comes another question. Is a Eucharistic miracle still transubstantiation? Because the accidents undergo a transformation similar to the substance, right? Would that be the same process or is there a different metaphysical term for what occurs in the instance of a Eucharistic miracle? That's a, that's a good tricky question. It's like you, have, you definitely have a conversion of the substance there, okay? So you have something in common with transubstantiation, but you also have something different from transubstantiation. As you point out, you have a change of the accidents. So, yeah, we would want to call it something, I think, different from transubstantiation. And usually we do just call it a Eucharistic miracle. The problem is that in the Eucharistic miracles themselves, it's not always the case. In fact, I think it's rarely the case that like the entire host turns into cardiac tissue or everything that's in the wine turns into or, or manifests the accidents, I guess you could say, of of blood. Rather, it's usually some part. So sometimes it will be a fragment from the host or some drops from the chalice that are on the corporal or something, they will turn into blood or, or display the accidents of the blood, we should say, to be accurate. Um, so it's complicated that way because it doesn't, it's, it can be like partial uh, the Eucharistic miracles can be partial or they can be complete. So, um, but generally we just call it a Eucharistic miracle. And yeah, there's something different from transubstantiation there. That's why everyone is shocked and surprised. But the point is to confirm the doctrine of transubstantiation. I hope that answers the question. You can always type in more if you want some follow-up. Let me go to the next one. If the words of institution are the linchpin of transubstantiation in the liturgy, how do we reconcile more ancient Syriac anaphoras that do not contain the words of institution in the consecration? That's a very good question. It's a question that the church herself took up years ago. And uh, I mean, several, I think about a decade ago, maybe more by now, a couple of decades ago, took up the question of very ancient anaphoras. Um, that do not mention the name or don't mention the words of institution. Now, there's a couple things to say about that. Um, first of all, the, I think one of the best treatments of this whole question is in a book called The Eucharist by 
uh, a theologian named Louis Bouillet, and he has a great study of how prayer and liturgy was done in the ancient world. And it, this may be very hard for us to believe, but in the ancient world, they just didn't have Eucharistic books. They didn't have, or they didn't have liturgical books early on. And that many of the prayers were oral and they were handed on by word of mouth and they were memorized. It was a culture of memory and it was not uncommon for human beings to memorize like the, all the Psalms, for example. There are monks to this day that memorize all the Psalms. I mean, even some of us Dominicans here at the House of you know, Studies or elsewhere, right? We, we memorize all the Psalms of Compline. It's, once you do these things enough, it's easy to remember them. So lots of things were passed on orally and were a matter of memory. And Louis Bouillet suggests that the words of institution actually were in those anaphoras, but they were used in, a, they were oral and part of the memory, but they were not necessarily written down once these things came to be written down significantly later. So whether the words were actually spoken in the liturgy is an open question. And since they are used in all the other liturgies, it stands to reason they might have very well have been used in those liturgies, even if they didn't make their way into the um, written forms of those Eucharistic prayers. But the basic answer to the question is, what the words contain, this is my body and this is my blood, is present in those anaphoras in a more diffuse way. That's, I guess, the, the basic answer the church gives to the question. So everything that Christ did and said at the Last Supper is contained in those Eucharistic prayers, but it's not necessarily contained under those very words. I think that's the basic answer the church gives to your question. But I still have suspicions, and I think the words were, may very well have been used orally in the ancient world. Um, so now, um, the next question, what does St. Thomas make of Eucharistic abuses as a priest? Was it a rough issue like today, or does he say something about it? He has a, a great deal to say about this. He has a whole question under the, vir under the virtue of religion. Religion is the virtue by which we render to God what is his due. And under that virtue, there's many little sub-virtues, so like devotion, adoration, thanksgiving, sacrifice is one of them. But there's a virtue called observance. And what the virtue of observance does is it holds to the mean in liturgical celebrations or rites. So when the church establishes a rite, the celebrant, in order to be observant, in order to have the virtue of observance, must do what the right specifies, at least to the fullest extent possible, or at least do nothing intentionally to the contrary. And that's what's necessary for the virtue of observance. So the priest needs to do that, not only with respect to the Eucharistic prayer, but with respect to all liturgical rites in the church. That's what the virtue of observance calls for. And furthermore, it makes a difference, Thomas Aquinas says in other places, because the many different prayers of the liturgy surrounding the Eucharist, although they might not be what causes the transubstantiation, they nonetheless have a causal role on the priest and on the people, and they are what St. Thomas calls dispositive causes. They dispose us in a certain way, 
and prepare us to, to celebrate the Eucharist and receive Holy Communion. And so they're not to be played around with. In fact, they are what St. Thomas says, they're sacramentals. So they still obtain grace for the participants in the liturgy. And so we, the priest should be observant. And Aquinas is very clear, if the priest intentionally, de intentionally goes against the rites, he, uh, it's, it's contrary to virtue, it's sinful. Um, so that's that one. Um, as for what kind of issue it was in his day, I don't know, it's hard to say. Um, there's always been Eucharistic or liturgical deviations. That's why he did discuss the, the, the virtue of observance. Okay, so what are Aquinas' main arguments for interpreting Jesus' words, this is my body, to indicate transubstantiation instead of consubstantiation or as a metaphorical statement? That's a good question. It's a really good question. And one of the main arguments is that uh, in the ancient languages, in Greek and in Latin, the words this, okay, they have case endings. So they take on the case of what they're modifying and they have gender as well. So they're masculine, feminine and neuter, unlike English, okay? So there has to be agreement in gender between what it, the, the term is signifying and um, the, the, the gender of the term, the gender of the word itself and the reality it's signifying. So if I remember correctly, um, Bread is, uh, is one gender, I think it's masculine, and corpus, body, is neuter. And Jesus says, hoc est enum corpus. So hoc is neuter that agrees with corpus, which is neuter, but a neuter uh, pronoun, hoc, would not agree with body, okay? So, it would, it just doesn't make sense grammatically. Anyone who's a native speaker of Latin or Greek would know that the, the agreements between the terms needs to be, uh, there needs to be agreement between the genders of the terms and um, they just don't do that in the Greek or in the, in the Latin. So that's one of the arguments uh, that he uses. And I think, uh, I mean, the tradition sees this uh, you have also the argument of the consensus of the fathers, native Greek and Latin speakers from the ancient world. Everyone in the entire church interpreted this in terms of transubstantiation for um, basically up, up until the 1500s. And so you have like where you have universal consensus like that, you have a sign of the spirit of truth. So universal consensus and the tradition of the church also confirms it. So you've got grammatical reasons. You've got other arguments from scripture, and you've got um, the tradition of the church itself. Also, Aquinas has other considerations that he mixes in. So for example, if it's consubstantiation, then there's really not a change at all. Okay, like what kind of change would it be? Bread would stay bread, but what? It would like also become the, the body of Christ? Well, then you have a problem. You've got two different kinds of bodies in one and the same place at one and the same time, which seems metaphysically impossible. Or you say that one is the accident of the other, like the body 
is the accident of the bread or the bread is the accident of the body. But then there's difficulties in going that way. So if you think about it philosophically, you've got problems as well. So you've got the argument from grammar, you've got the argument from tradition, you've got argument from various philosophical considerations. And that's why no one believed in consubstantiation until the 1500s. So um, uh, that's sort of the way Aquinas deals with that. There's other considerations that he has in his article on the Eucharistic change or the conversion. Um, yeah, now also when it comes to a metaphorical statement, I want to zero in on that. So consubstantiation is one issue, metaphor is another. And there, if you want to know why we don't interpret the words, this, and, this is my body and this is my blood metaphorically, there we would go to John chapter six, which is where the doctrine of the real presence is laid out in very explicit terms. And the Lord says over and over in that passage, as he's speaking to the crowds and to the Pharisees and to his disciples, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you. So what he's saying is that in order to have life and in order to be saved, you, you need to drink, eat, eat his body and drink his blood. Okay. Does he, did he mean that literally or metaphorically? We can rule out metaphor for a couple of reasons. Number one, in ancient Hebrew, the, word, the expression eat my body and drink my blood already had a metaphorical meaning. And it's found in the Old Testament in a number of places. It was like a turn of phrase or an idiom uh, or a kind of turn of speech that people would use. And basically it meant unless you persecute me, okay, or unless you oppose me, okay, yeah, violently, like do something violent to me, you will have no life within you. So if we interpret it metaphorically, what it would mean is Jesus is saying, unless you persecute me and violently uh, turn against me, you'll have no life within you. And that's a, obviously a misinterpretation because what it would mean is that in order for us to receive life from Christ, we would need to actually like turn against him. Now I know some people try to say what that means is they had to kill him on the cross. Yes, but everything that is said in the Gospel of John is meant to be something true for all times. So uh, Jesus is not calling us to turn violently against him and making that a necessary condition for our salvation. So we can rule out a metaphorical reading for that reason. Um, but there's also another reason to rule out a metaphorical interpretation. And that is because the people in the story in the Gospel of John chapter 6 are scratching their heads saying, what do you mean by eat your body and drink your blood? I mean, do you really mean that? Like, what do you mean? And Jesus keeps repeating it over and over, and he changes the verbs that he uses in certain places, and he begins to say, unless you, like, gnaw on my flesh and blood, you'll have, you can have no life within you. And they all walk away. They think this is insane, this is crazy. But there's nothing insane or crazy about it if it's just a metaphor. But they knew how to interpret him, and they interpreted him like in a way that was literal because that's how he was making himself understood. And so they all walked away and then they have the famous scene where he turns to his disciples and says, well, will you walk away too? And that's when Peter very famously says, where shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. So we can rule out the metaphorical interpretation for that reason, okay? Cool, other questions? Oh, here we go, one just came in. Is Aristotelian metaphysics necessary for the doctrine of transubstantiation? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. A lot of people are really concerned about this. They think that the church has tied her theology to one particular philosophy in a way that's very unacceptable. So sometimes people will say, look, if I have a problem with Aristotelian philosophy or Aristotelian metaphysics, then I cannot accept the church's teaching about transubstantiation. And uh, I think there's an easy way to set that to set that aside. All you have to do is be willing to countenance the difference between a, a, the reality and features. So all you have to do is be willing to say, when we celebrate the Eucharist, the reality changes. It's a different kind of thing. We don't have to use the word substance. And we don't have to use the word accident. And we don't have to commit ourselves to every single thesis that's in Aristotle's metaphysics of substance and accident. All you have to do is be willing to say, at this moment, there's one kind of thing. And at another moment, there's not the same kind of thing anymore. Or more simply still, you would just need to be able to say, at this moment, there's bread. At a later moment, it's not bread but it's the actual body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ under different appearances, under the appearances of bread and wine. If you're willing to say that, then you have in, in essence, in substance, no pun intended, the, the doctrine of transubstantiation. So I do think we can let go of the words substance and accident, and we can let go of a how should I put it, a global commitment to the metaphysics of substance and accident, although I think those are necessary truths myself. A lot of the principle of substance is a necessary truth. But if someone really were to object to that, let go of it, a person could still hold the faith of the Catholic Church. Um, you, a person could. It would be a question of learning to restate the doctrine in different words and different theologians have tried to do that. And if you wanna see an example of it, go look up online something called the Credo of the People of God by Pope Paul VI. He issued that statement in 1968, I believe it was. After the Second Vatican Council, there was a lot of doctrinal confusion and chaos that was sweeping over the church after the council. And Pope Paul VI issued a, cre a creed. It's a lot longer than the uh, Nicene Creed we say at Mass. It's, oh, I don't know, six or seven pages long. And it's a six or seven page long restatement of all the fundamental teachings of the church. And you'll find in that paragraph, a you'll find in that statement, a paragraph on the Eucharist. And he states and formulates the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist without using the words substance or accident. I think he just uses the word, the reality. The reality changes under, and uh, we now have the reality of Christ under the species or under the appearances of bread and wine. And this change 
has been called transubstantiation. And he says, any theology of the Eucharist that theologians want to put forward today to try to better explain the mystery has to be coherent or consistent with this statement. So uh, you might want to go look up the credo of the people of God to get, how should I put it, a statement of the doctrine of the real presence in terms that are non-Aristotelian, but have been put forward by the church as adequately expressing her faith in the real presence nonetheless. And so you might want to go take a look at the credo of the people of God, okay? I hope that answers your question. Here comes another one. Is belief in transubstantiation as the explanation of the real presence indispensable to the Catholic faith? I ask for the sake of understanding how the church held to the real presence before Aquinas. Oh, I see. So, yes, the church of all ages, from the days of Christ until today, has believed in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and has believed in this radical, and we say total, transformation or conversion that takes place in the bread and wine so that they become the body and blood of Christ in the liturgy. And how did the church talk about that before Aquinas? It's not difficult to answer that question. The fathers of the church had many, many, many homilies about this and commentaries on scripture and things that letters that they wrote and things like that. And when we go back and look at their writings, many of which are available online, I mean, you can look up uh, the Eucharist and the Fathers of the Church. Uh, you can go find a book called The Hidden Manna by Ignatius Press. It walks through a lot of the fathers and a lot of the things they have to say about the Eucharist. Um, they have many statements where they just say, it's not bread, it's not wine, it's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's really him, it's really and truly him. Or they'll say things like, when you eat, you are not eating. What you eat is not bread and wine, but it is truly Jesus Christ himself. They'll say things like that. And they'll say that repeatedly in different places at different times. There's like a universal consensus about this. And so it's very stark and clear language. And what Aquinas's doctrine of transubstantiation is trying to do, his theology of this, is he's trying to capture everything that the fathers were trying to say and explain or how should I put it, clarify what they were saying in metaphysical detail. So they say it in a general way. He says it in a much more specific and detailed, metaphysically detailed way. So you're kind of, the church is going from the general to the specific when it comes to the mystery of Christ's Eucharistic presence. And that's the way to think about it. So the fathers did not have the specifics or the details, but they had the teaching that calls for that kind of detailed study and, and nuanced uh, distinctions. So I hope that answers your question. The way I would answer it shortly is that the fathers of the church just spoke very, very realistically about the real presence of Christ. All right. If there's no further questions, thank you, everybody, for coming. This was great. It did my heart no small good to know that a, a number of people came out just to listen to this talk. And uh, 
yeah, please go tell the whole world about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist and how his presence, well, it's everything you could ever want right there. Okay? God bless you all.